Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. This is God's word for us tonight. I'd love to pray before we look at it together. So let me pray. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see uh, what this vision might entail of what our hope is. Father, I know that there's a lot of people tonight that wouldn't identify themselves as Christians. And as they're sitting out here kind of looking in on this conversation, I pray that you would give them and give us, at least those of us in this room that are Christians, a deeper sense of what our hope could be. Really transform us by this vision that you've held out for us in Revelation 21. Transform us right here and right now. And that would be our prayer. And we would pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is, in other words, uh, the Christian hope? Well, that's kind of what I want to look at tonight. And I want to look at it from this passage, um, wait for it, from three different angles. Um, What the Christian's hope is in terms of its magnitude, in terms of its wonder, And then in terms of its access. So those are the three big ideas that we're going to look at. The Christian hope. It's magnitude, it's wonder, and then it's access. So first, what do I mean by its magnitude? What what is the magnitude? What is the scope of the Christian hope? Well, look at verse 1. There it is again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Here is John, who is the author. He's looking down the corridors at the end of time to the end of human history. And what does he see? He does not see souls floating around in the clouds. He sees a new heaven and a new earth. A transformed, glorified, renovated, restored planet earth. Meaning he sees like a transformed Knoxville and like a glorified Tennessee. Meaning he literally sees like grass and hills and concrete and cities and people, only it's perfected now. And the best way that I could try to think of how to describe this to you was to um, give a little shout out to Toy Story 2. That's the, that's the favorite of my children's, of, of the Toy Story catalog. Because Toy Story 1 is way too, has that really creepy, scary scene with that doll head with like the spider that comes out of the, of the bed, you know what I'm talking about? Too scary. Toy Story 2, Toy Story 3, too sad, too scary as well. So Toy Story 2 is kind of the sweet spot. And if you remember, uh, Woody has been sort of captured by that sketchy guy that's wanting to sell him to um, this like toy paraphernalia collector in Japan. But Earlier in the episode, Woody's arm has been ripped off, kind of. Do you remember? So the sketchy dude brings in this old guy to repair him and to fix him. And so this guy, the old guy, remember, he has a giant magnifying glass. And he has this, like, box of, like, a million tiny little tools in it. And he sets Woody up in 
it's like a little dentist chair for like a little doll. And he starts to meticulously go to work on Woody. So he gets this little like Q-tip thing and he kind, of, he kind of wipes away the dust from his eyes and his ears and he sprays the rosy glow back into his cheeks and uh, he kind of paints away the scratches and the chips and hems his arm back on. And before it's all said and done, Woody is made new. He's transformed. It's the same doll, it's the same Woody, only he's undergone like a total makeover. And uh, he's upgraded. He's even more gloriously Woody than he was originally. And if you take that idea and then sort of expand it on a cosmic level, that's what God is going to do with the universe. He's going to take everything that there is and renovate it, restore it, beautify it. This is why he says in verse 5, I am making all things new. All things. I'm going to do this thing, this renovative work to everything. That's the magnitude of the Christian hope. A renewed, transformed, perfected, renovated planet Earth. This is why uh, the ultimate hope for Christians is not us going up to heaven. Verse 2, it says heaven is coming down to this world. Now, if this feels a little science fiction and kind of weird to you, let me think of it, think of it like this. Have you ever noticed that Jesus' miracles in the Gospels are never kind of fancy party tricks to draw attention to himself? I mean, he could have done that. He could have done cool stuff to like, kind of show off. He could have been like, check this out, fireball's about to come out of my hand, bam, done. Or he could have said, hey, leper over there, watch this. I can make lasers blast out of my eyes in three, two, one, done. I mean, he could have done this, right? He could have turned people's fingers into bacon strips, should he have chosen to do so. But he doesn't. That would have been an amazing miracle, let's just be honest. Bacon. Uh, He doesn't do that. What do you see Jesus doing? His miracles. When he could have done anything kind of cool, he is healing people that are sick. And he's feeding the hungry. And he's raising the dead to life again. And what does that show you? That shows you that his whole ministry showcases what he is about. He is about restoring that which is broken. People were not originally made to be sick, and so he heals them. People were not originally made to be hungry, and so he feeds them. People were not originally made to die, and so he raises them. And so his whole ministry is a, it's a movie trailer showing you what he's committed to. He's committed to restoring, renovating, making everything right again, healing everything that was broken. And so, what does that tell you about God? That tells you that God actually cares about this world. And I think that's really important. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world. He loves this world. And I think that means that you're right to love it too. And so if it feels like, yeah, I don't want to leave this world because I love football and I love music and I love food and I don't want to just be a ghost in the clouds, the reason why you feel like that doesn't feel good to you is because that's not what the destiny is. That's not what's wired into you. For you to love this world is a good thing. To love coffee, to love ice cream, to love animals, to love music, to love strawberries. The reason why you love all of that is because all of that is going to be in the new world. Renovated, perfected, gloriously transformed. That's the magnitude of the Christian hope. All things 
renewed and restored. Secondly, though, what's the wonder? If that's just kind of what it is, then like on a qualitative scale, what does it look like? What does it feel like? Well, the, the, there's, a, there's a real wonder here. And while the Bible doesn't give you kind of a crystal clear picture, it at least gives you enough images to stir your heart and to stir your imagination on how gloriously wonderful it will be. And so I want, let me just give you two, two little highlights. Here's the first sort of highlight. Look, go back in verse 1. If you notice at the end of verse 1 it says, and there was no longer any sea. And some of you are like, okay, a new world with no sea? Like, that's kind of a letdown. I like this. I like the ocean. I like the beach. Just land? Kind of, it kind of sucks. That's not exactly what this is saying, though. If you remember, we're dealing with Revelation, highly symbolic. The sea, the metaphor of what a sea is all throughout the Bible is the metaphor of chaos. If you, if you think about it, this was a fishing culture. And so people who lived in a fishing culture, the sea represented that which was dangerous and dark and untamable and chaotic. And what this is saying is that the new heavens and the new earth will be no chaos, no turmoil, peace. Finally, a place where you don't have to carry around pepper spray, where you don't have to lock your doors, where you don't have to have insurance, where you don't have to worry, where you don't have, where you don't have to password protect your email and your phone. No more chaos. Peace. And the reason why I think this is so important, especially for people like me, and if you're anything like me, I'm a bit of a perfectionist and a control freak. And what that means for me is that I get very easily overwhelmed with chaos. That when there's so much stuff kind of piling up, you know, it's like I can just kind of break down in the sense of, uh, you know, for, for you it may be assignments and projects and deadlines. For me it's these obligations, these expectations, these responsibilities. I got all this stuff to do. And when it kind of all piles up like that, I just kind of like want to break out in hives and like crawl under this like pool of stress and like, uh, and begin to sort of work my way through it because control freaks and perfectionists like myself want things controlled and managed and organized. And when things are chaotic and crazy, that makes me crazy. And what happens is that you begin to live your life very irritable and brittle and easily angry, angered. Um, You resent interruptions. You get pissed off when there's lines in traffic or lines in the grocery store when, there's, when things block you from accomplishing what you want to do. And why this is, I think, so helpful is because this tells you peace is coming. It's just coming on the other side of glory. This side of eternity, this is a cursed and fallen world in which chaos is king. Chaos reigns, and so it, it, it is a fool's errand to think that you can organize and manage and control this life in such a way where it will be chaos-free. If you continue to do that, if you don't change your expectation and think, I can have a chaos-free life, you're always going to be angry, you're always going to be frustrated, you're always going to be irritable, because guess what? You can't stop the chaos. One day it will stop but not this side of glory. And what that does is when you swallow that pill and realize, okay, this world is chaotic and crazy, that means you can kind of handle it a little bit better. It can slide off your back. You can deal with it. You don't have the hive stressed out, angry, you know, control freak monster like I can become. You're freed from that. That's really helpful to know that in this life, this side of glory, there is chaos, but there is a world coming. 
in which there is peace, and there is no more turmoil, and there is, there is peace. That's the first sort of highlight of the wonder of this new heavens, new earth that I want to talk about. But what about the second little feature here? The second little highlight is this. Look at verse 3 and 4. I'll read it again. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The second little highlight that I want to draw your attention to about our hope is that you will experience unfiltered intimacy with God. Where he dwells with you physically. Where your faith becomes sight. Where you doubt him no more. You no longer question his existence. You no longer question his goodness to you. You are bathing for eternity in the presence of him. You're at home with him. He's dwelling with you and you're with him. And this is what you were made for. And what does that sort of relationship look like stretched out over eternity? Look at verse 4. What does this experience look like? It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Think about what that would look like to be in God's presence where that is true. This means you live your life in such a way where there are no more funerals. There are no more school shootings. There is no more police brutality. There is no more cancer. There is no more losing loved ones. There is no more death. Death is gone. There is no more pain. No more pain from your family in the sense that they do not understand you. No more pain from your family in the sense that they have hurt you. No more pain from your friends in the sense that you feel rejected by them. You feel like you can never kind of get in with the cool group. That You feel like they've betrayed you. No more pain, no more sadness, no more death because you're with him. But it even goes deeper than that. And to kind of set this up, I want to tell a story that I heard secondhand from a guy named Ricky Jones. Ricky Jones is a church planner in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But, fun fact, he was the RUF, he was the RUF intern, one of the first RUF interns here at the University of Tennessee. And this story took place in the early 90s while he was here at UT. This is a true story about some UT students. He said he, during his time as an intern, he saw one of the most crazy, radical conversion stories where someone came to Christ. It was this guy who was just kind of crazy into drugs, just kind of the wild, uh, just kind of living up the party scene, the drug scene, and was so just overwhelmed with sadness and depression, just spiraling, he eventually wanted to end his life. And the way that this UT student chose to end his life was to pour gasoline on himself and then to light himself on fire. And I don't know where this took place. Part of me thinks that this took place in the fort because the way that the story goes is that there was one of his friends, who was this girl who lived across the street from him, saw him do this runs across the street while he's on fire. She find, quickly finds a blanket, throws it on him, and begins to roll him kind of in the ground to put up the fire. Fire stopped. His life is saved. Obviously horribly burned, immediately hospitalized. And he's in the hospital for uh, a long stretch of time, of which this girl, the next-door neighbor, would come and visit him. And she was a Christian, and so she would just kind of regularly go to the hospital and be with him and pray with him and read scripture to him. Somewhere in the course of being in the hospital, he becomes converted, becomes a Christian, starts to follow Christ. And the story goes that once he left the hospital, eventually these two get married. And if you think about it, 
Um, during the engagement, you can imagine how much just shame he carried with himself of like just so much embarrassment over what he has done, you know, kind of what he did. He was, you know, disfigured because of the burns and the, uh, just the wounds to his body and horribly just embarrassed about how he looked. And what I'm going to tell you next feels like I'm about to tell you something really explicit, but it's not. But on their wedding night, she takes off his shirt and what she does for the first hour is she begins to kiss his scars. She spends the first hour of their wedding night meticulously kissing each and every one of his scars and his wounds, applying her love and her grace to the places of his shame and his pain. Now, I know, I know some of y'all, and I know some of you better than others, but I know that there's a lot of pain in this room. And some of you probably do carry scars physically, either because of what has done, been done to you or because of what you have done to yourself. Or some of you may just have scars on your soul. But what I love about that story, because I think I love it so much because it reminds me of verse 4. If you look at verse 4, just look how tender and personal it is. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He could have just snapped his finger and the tears go away, but he, he wipes them away. He applies his love and his grace to our deepest pain and our deepest shame. And I think you and I really need to hear this because there is a day coming when the Lord will look at you and look at me and he will wipe away our tears and he will apply his love and his grace to our deepest wounds and we will be healed. This side of glory, I don't think that we will be. I think you and I will always carry around at some level the wounds in our souls from just living in a broken world. But there is a day coming in which those wounds will be healed. You remember the song um, from the Ava Brothers, Weight of Lies? The weight of lies will bring you down and follow you to every town because nothing happens here that doesn't happen there. It's this beautiful song that really talks about this guy who has these problems and these issues and he really does think he can find healing if he just moves. If he just goes to a different town, starts over, he will get some healing. But the point of the song is to say there's a little bit of a problem with that because what happens here is the same thing that happens there. You can't avoid you because you're going with you. You're always carrying around your wounds with you. And if you and I don't understand this, then we're going to buy into the lie of thinking, if we can just restart our life in a certain way, our wounds will be healed. If I can just get a new friend group, I'll be healed. I'll be better. If I can just finish the semester and sort of reboot in the summer or reboot in the fall, I'll be healed in some way. If I can, just, if I can transfer schools and start over somewhere else, I'll be healed. If I can just get a little bit more drink, a little bit more sex, a little bit more Netflix, a little bit more clothes, whatever, then I'll be healed. And this is saying it's a fool's errand. Because you can't avoid you. You're always with you. You can't outrun your problems. You can't outrun your wounds. But there is a day coming where someday, one day, he will personally wipe away your tears and apply his love and his grace to your deepest wounds. And you will be healed. And that is, that's part of the wonder of our hope. Unfiltered intimacy with him in which he heals us, wipes away our tears, no more death, no more sadness, no more mourning, no more crying, no more shame, no more chaos. So lastly, how do we get it then? How, how do we access this? Some of you are like, this, this sounds great. Sign me up, what do I do? 
Well, I think this passage is really straightforward. It tells you in verse 7, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The spring of the water of life. I think that just means full satisfaction. What you're thirsting for, what you're aching for, what you're longing for, finally quenched, finally satisfied. One day, someday satisfied. And he says he gives it to you for free, without cost. You don't pay anything to get it. You don't earn your way to get it. You don't negotiate your way to get it. You're not good enough to get it. He just gives it to you for free. In fact, it seems to be that there's only one precondition by which you would get this water. This passage tells you, and the rest of the Bible tells you, the only condition by which you get this water is that you just need to be thirsty. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. But here's the question. How can that be true? Because I thought God was supposed to be holy and couldn't tolerate sin and couldn't be around sinners. How can he freely give us this hope of the new heavens and new earth for free when we're arrogant and we're greedy and we're liars and we're mean to our parents and we're bad friends and we willingly devote hours of our day to Netflix and to Instagram and Snapchat, but we can't pray for 10 seconds without getting bored. That's who we are, and he gives it to us for free. How is that even possible? Well, um, here's how. And I think it's really interesting. Before Jesus goes to the cross, he starts talking about the cross in terms of drinking. Did you know this? When he's praying in the garden, before he goes to the cross, he says, let this cup pass from me. He starts talking about the cross as a cup he's got to drink. He's like, I don't want to drink this. Let this pass. Why in the world is he talking about drinking in terms of the cross? Well, to answer that, I, I, want, to take, I want to pause here and do a little commercial break. I want to read a little something from uh, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. We'll just do a little story time with Matt right here in the end of the sermon. Why not? And um, uh, as, as you may remember from the book or the movie, Harry and his mentor... Old man Dumbledore find their way to uh, this kind of dark cave, and there's this black lake that you come to find out later has all these kind of cool zombies in it. But they, they come up to this basin with this emerald green liquid in it that they discover Dumbledore's going to have to drink the whole thing to the bottom if they're going to kind of accomplish their mission. I'm not going to give away what's going on there, but Dumbledore's got to drink this goblet, and we begin. And Dumbledore drained. The goblet. Harry watched, terrified, his hands gripping the rim of the basin so hard that his fingertips were numb. Professor, he said anxiously, I'm not going to do it in a British accent. Professor, he, he said anxiously as Dumbledore lowered the empty glass, how do you feel? Dumbledore shook his head, eyes closed. kind of want to think I'm saying, all right. Harry wondered whether he was in pain. Dumbledore plunged the glass blindly back into the basin, refilled it, drank once more. In silence, Dumbledore drank three goblets full of the potion. Then, halfway through the fourth goblet, he staggered and fell forward against the basin. His eyes were still closed, his breathing heavy. Professor Dumbledore, said Harry, his voice strained. Can you hear me? <laughs> Dumbledore did not answer. 
His face was twitching as though he was deeply asleep, but dreaming a horrible dream. His grip on the goblet was slackening. The potion was about to spill from it. Harry reached forward and grasped the crystal cup, holding it steady. Professor, can you hear me? He repeated loudly, his voice echoing around the cavern. Dumbledore panted and then spoke in a voice Harry did not recognize, for he had never heard Dumbledore frightened like this. I don't want... Don't make me... Harry stared into the whitened face he knew so well at the crooked nose and half-moon spectacles and did not know what to do. Don't like... (laughs) Me no likey. Want to stop, moaned Dumbledore. You... You can't stop, Professor, said Harry. I'm adding a little bit of my own uh, twist as we go. You can't stop, Professor, said Harry. You've got to keep drinking, remember? You told me you had to keep drinking. Here. Hating himself, repulsed by what he was doing, Harry forced the goblet back toward Dumbledore's mouth and tipped it so that Dumbledore drank the remainder of the potion inside. No, he groaned as Harry lowered the goblet back into the basin and refilled it for him. I don't want to. I don't want to. Let me go. It's all right, Professor, said Harry, his hands shaking. It's all right. I'm here. Make it stop. Make it stop, moaned Dumbledore. Yes, yes, this will make it stop lied Harry, and he tipped the contents of the goblet into Dumbledore's open mouth. Dumbledore screamed. The noise echoed all around the vast chamber across the dead black water. No! 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 I can't! I can't! Don't make me! I don't want to! And so this continues, where Harry's forcing him to drink this stuff, and Dumbledore's just kind of writhing in anguish, and he's pain, and he's saying, no, no, and he's kind of, he's going weaker and weaker and weaker. And now he fell forward, screaming again, hammering his fist on the ground while Harry filled the ninth goblet. Please, please, no, not that. I'll do anything. Just drink, Professor, just drink. And Dumbledore drank like a child dying of thirst. But when he had finished, he yelled again as though his insides were on fire. No more, please, no more. Harry scooped up a tenth goblet of potion and felt the crystal scrape the bottom of the basin. We're nearly there, Professor. Drink it. Drink this. And he supported Dumbledore's shoulders again, and Dumbledore drained the glass, and then Harry was on his feet once more, refilling the goblet as Dumbledore began to scream in more anguish than ever. I want to die. I want to die. Make it stop. Make it stop. Dumbledore gulped at the goblet, drained every last drop, and then with a great rattling gasp rolled over onto his face. No! shouted Harry, who had stood to refill the goblet again. Instead, he dropped the cup into the basin, flung himself down beside Dumbledore, and heaved him over onto his back. Dumbledore's glasses were askew, his mouth agape, his eyes closed. No, said Harry, shaking Dumbledore. No, you're not dead. You said it wasn't poison. Wake up, wake up! Renovate, he cried. His wand pointed at Dumbledore's chest. There was a flash of red light, but nothing happened. Renovate, sir, please. Dumbledore's eyes flickered. Harry's heart leapt. Sir, are you? Water, croaked Dumbledore. Water, panted Harry, yes. And then it goes on where Dumbledore is just gasping of thirst, crying out for water. And here he goes to try to find himself. I won't tell you how the story ends. But here's why I read that. Here's this man who's essentially drinking this poison that's killing him all the way down to the bottom. And when he gets to the end, he cries out for water because he's so desperately thirsty. And I think that's a very interesting. Because as Jesus goes to the cross, he says, I got to drink this cup 
and I don't really want to. But he goes to the cross anyway. And as he's, quote, drinking the cup down to the bottom, he's writhing in pain and anguish. And at the very end of it, in John chapter 19, verse 28, he calls out, I'm thirsty. And in Psalm 22, which is a psalm about the crucifixion, it says that, the, that his tongue is stuck to the roof of his mouth, so desperately thirsty. Now, how does that make sense? Jesus, who is the source of life, drinking this cup and yet dying of thirst, what is going on there? The only way that this would ever make sense is if you knew that there is this metaphor throughout the whole Bible a metaphor that describes God's judgment and hatred of sin and punishment as a cup. In fact, if you look in the Old Testament, several places it says that God will pour out this cup of his wrath on his enemies and have them drink it down to the bottom. And Jesus, out of love for you and me, steps forward and says, Father, do not pour it out on them. I will drink this cup for my enemies. And as he drinks the cup of God's wrath, standing in your place and in mine, drinks it to the bottom, he is experiencing unquenchable, ultimate spiritual thirst. He's experiencing what life is really like apart from God. No satisfaction, no quenching, no desires met. Ultimate spiritual dehydration. He does that so that he can give it to you for free. He drinks the cup of death so that he can offer you the cup of life for free. You don't earn it. You don't work your way into it. You're not a good little boy or a good little girl in order to get it. The precondition is that you're thirsty. He who was satisfied became thirsty for you so that you who are thirsty can become satisfied in him. In fact, John chapter 7, verse 37, he says this, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And so here's how I want to end. I want to end by just letting you know that the access, the way that you tap into this future hope of the new heavens and new earth is that you come to Jesus. Not good, not cleaned up, not with resolutions, not saying I'm going to try harder, not with promises that you're going to be super spiritual now. It's you coming to him brave enough to admit, I need you. Everything else I've been trying to satisfy my thirst has felt like hot sand in my soul. It's just not working. Are you brave enough tonight to admit that? To admit that you need him? Are you courageous enough to say, the stuff that I'm doing to satisfy my heart, it's not working? The distractions, the relationships, the career goals, the whatever, it's not working. Are you brave enough to come to him then, to, to literally say, I'm thirsty and I need you? Because the promise is, is that when you do that, you are an heir of the new heavens and new earth, where you have the hope where he will pour out the river of the spring of life upon you and let you drink freely with all of your, satis- with all of your needs met. But you must come. And so that's the invitation for you tonight. If you are thirsty, come to Jesus and drink. And he will provide you free of cost with the spring of the water of life. Let me pray. Father, um, I pray that this vision of the hope of glory would so set our hearts and our imaginations on fire that we would go through this life differently. 
We would relate to chaos differently. We would relate to suffering differently. We would relate to death differently because we have a hope of a better world because of your grace and your work. Thank you for Jesus who freely of his grace loves us and gives himself to us that we really don't have to work our way into this. We can show up arrogant, messed up, doubting, hurting, knowing that your grace is enough, knowing that you are enough, knowing that you will one day ultimately wipe away every tear and everything sad will become untrue. Help us to believe it this night by your grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.